Hello everyone, welcome to Hi, How Are You? Today, we are excited to bring you the first episode in our series with Sam Biagetti about Hasidic Judaism. In this episode, we do a big survey of the divisions that Jews have used for each other and perceived in each other from the start of Jewish history all the way through the Middle Ages and modern times. Hopefully this episode provides some background information for episode two coming next week about the particular movement called Hasidism that started in the early modern era. Thank you all, and I hope you enjoy the show. Open your Bible. Yeah, you're moderately well known. <laughs> A minor celebrity. Welcome, listeners, to our series on Hasidism. Today, I am fortunate to be sitting across from Samuel Biagetti, historian extraordinaire, historian of the Historian Splaining podcast. I brought Sam here today to talk about Hasidic Judaism, but not quite yet. Before we get into what we're actually going to be talking about this episode, I want to ask you, Sam. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm a little sluggish again because it was dreary weather, which is very contrary to my nature. So I think I will rouse myself once more for the Jewish people. Okay, great. I'm so happy. <laughs> are you going to ask me how I am? Yes. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm at my parents' house right now. And so are you, as a matter of fact. Yeah, you and some friends. Well, I I brought them I brought the lady yeah. over to, to see the parents. And the canine. And the canine. Okay. The R series is about Hasidism or Hasidic Judaism. I think in America when most people hear Hasidic and they hear that we're gonna do about a series on Hasidic Judaism, they think, oh, we're gonna talk about Orthodox Judaism. And then they have a whole set of assumptions about what Orthodox is. They think Orthodox Judaism is the way Judaism has always been. So there's a lot of assumptions with these words. So before we go into actually talking about what this particular philosophical movement was when it came about in the 1700s, I wanted to talk about labels that Jews have used for each other, where they come from, when are they useful, when are they not useful, and go into the history of all of that. I welcome Sam to elucidate all of that. Go. <laughs> you have five minutes. Well, I did some research, you know, like you do, and I looked back and I sort of tried to figure out, is there a pattern to how Jews kind of subdivide themselves and distinguish themselves into groups? When did that begin? And is there some sort of point like in the mists of time when there were just Jews and there was no differentiation? You're probably not going to be surprised to know, no, there is no point in time where Jews were just Jews, right? There's always been some kind of distinctions. In order to understand the modern labels that we have, the modern divisions, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, mm -hmm. Hasidic, there's other labels out there that some people have probably heard of who listen. Do you think it's important for us to kind of understand the historical background of all those, what preceded them? I think it is good in order to 
get how these dynamics keep coming up over and over, these same sort of problems keep coming up. I think there are some early historical phenomena that are good to know about to clarify that. There are different kind of axes, as I would say, along which Jews will arrange themselves. So you can see certain patterns. The two big axes are just Firstly, regionalism, like breaking Jews down into groups based on you guys are over there, you have those customs, that language, you guys are over there. And that keeps coming up and dividing and redividing in different ways. And then the other is, you could say, kind of the question of assimilation, which is a really loaded term. So I'm going to be careful about like what we mean by assimilation. A more neutral term is acculturation. Like how much do you think Jews ought to adapt to the non-Jewish environment that they're in? And how much do you want to draw sharp distinctions between Jews and non-Jews? You know, how much do you want to stand out from others? And that's kind of a constant, complicated push and pull. So different Jews will kind of split or label each other or describe each other based on like, how assimilated are you or not? So we have assimilation and regionalism. Mm -hmm. Are those the two main organizing axes? Well, I think those are the big ones that are like constantly there. Like constantly since Second Temple time? Like pre-Temple. <laughs> like all the way. So there's like no primordial essence of Jew. Like I can't no. go to a store and get Calvin Klein essence no. of Jew. There's Jewish law. There's belief in the covenant, right? And how you understand that and apply that in <sighs> halacha, in Jewish law and custom. But it's not as if there's, yeah, some kind of essence of Jew that's totally unaffected by the world. That's impossible to find. So you're always in this kind of push and pull. I would say there are also two other significant axes that come up, but are not as constant. One is sectarianism, which sort of comes out of the question of assimilation. So sectarianism is like offshoot groups, subgroups that choose to kind of go off in their own direction and often adopt like a particularly strict or elaborate notion of how to be Jewish in distinction to everybody else. So Jews have schisms, right? The same as any group, but not necessarily as much as, say, Christians or Muslims, because it's not a doctrine-based religion like Christianity. So when you do have sectarianism, it's more often about like proper behavior, about how to properly observe all of Jewish law. So there are groups that sort of form their own lifestyles, right, and might be more strict or in their way more strict than others. And then there's also just the question of classes and castes, so higher and lower status people within the Jewish community. And that's an issue in a different way because Judaism is traditionally very egalitarian. There are inequalities like between men and women, but households, families are supposed to be equal in theory. So there's often tension around, well, what if some people are wealthier than others? What if some people have the really prestigious roles in society, like families that have a lot of rabbis or families that take on leadership and act as kind of spokespersons of the community? That can cause anxiety and tension because you know, it's like we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. So all of those are different kinds of differentiation that come up and often cause friction among Jews. Part one, divisions among Jews in ancient and medieval times. 
So one thing I found, which I was sort of vaguely aware of from reading about the Torah and the history of the Torah, but that I didn't fully grasp until recently, is that there have been regional differentiations among Jews from as far back as we can see in the record. You know, obviously, if you think about the scriptures, there are the 12 tribes. And we don't know a lot about who these tribes were. And if you look at different places in the text, it's not always consistent. In the Song of Deborah, which we think is very, very early, where Deborah calls together the tribes of Israelites to fight together, there are 10. And then in other places, they list 12. (laughs) So it's a little confusing. And like the Levites show up in some lists and not in others, like Deborah doesn't mention the Levites. So some people theorize that they were like an additional group that maybe came from Egypt and joined the other Israelites. But there was a long push and pull and sort of tug of war over whether these tribes should remain kind of local and self-governing, or if they should pull together around one capital, one monarch, one temple. That's what a lot of the struggle was of David, King David's reign, and Solomon's too. There were a lot of rebellions and little civil wars in this sort of power struggle where some of the tribes wanted to keep their autonomy with their own local shrines. And that's why Solomon's temple was such a big dramatic statement. He was saying, no, one temple, one priesthood, one holy of holies, and all sacrifices, all offerings must come here. And he was sort of robbing these little local shrines around the local tribes of their importance. Not everyone liked that. So there was a power struggle there. You may know after Solomon died, the kingdom split up. So technically, there were two kingdoms. There was the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Both of them accepted David and Solomon as their rulers, right? But after Solomon dies, they split up again because the northern kingdom of Israel does not like this monarchy. They don't like this single temple. They feel oppressed with taxes and conscription. So they basically break away. And you have this long period with two separate kingdoms, kind of like frenemies. They look at each other with some suspicion. For instance, in the southern kingdom of Judah, they were more strict about some of the laws, especially laws about ritual purity, like the kosher laws. Scholars currently believe that that's where the pork taboo came from. And part of why Judah developed this very strict taboo was because They didn't customarily eat much pork. It doesn't make a lot of sense in like a desert environment. But up in Israel, in the northern kingdom, they did still eat some pork. And so did the Philistines, who were like these basically enemy people migrating down from the Aegean, from the area that's now Greece. And they ate a lot of pork. And so saying we don't eat pork was a way of differentiating yourself and saying we're not like those Philistines. And we're not like the northern kingdom of Israel, who we see as more lax. I remember reading somewhere that Judah was a more rural kingdom, and the northern kingdom, Israel, was more cosmopolitan. Some people think that the southern kingdom was drawn to, like, more purity stuff in order to differentiate themselves from, like, the more affluent, lax, quote-unquote, northerners. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we don't have a whole lot of information to know for sure in detail, but that's certainly what the clues seem like, is that the southern kingdom was more desert, more village-based, and the northern kingdom was a bit more urban. You had Samaria became kind of a big cosmopolitan city. In the northern kingdom, they did a lot of the same sort of things that Solomon had done, 
meaning they did things like invited foreign rulers and made treaties and held feasts with them and married their sisters or daughters, you know, and you had like Ahab marrying Jezebel, who was from Phoenicia, you know, a Canaanite from further north. She comes down, she brings her gods, her priests, and she butts heads then with Elijah, who is this very strict monotheist kind of radical who doesn't want any of these foreign gods coming in to what he considers the holy land is elijah from the northern kingdom i think he was from the north but a lot of his followers and supporters were from the south so he represented more of the judah kind of point of view although i think that he was from israel if i remember right so there's this long kind of repeating clash and tug of war between these two different senses of how to be Jewish, right? And in the Northern Kingdom, they're basically saying, look, you know, we believe in the Torah from God, we believe in the law of Moses, but we have to like exist in, and survive in this world. And we have to do this trade and diplomacy and intermarriage in order to thrive in the Middle East. Whereas Judah is more the rigorous side of things. Over and over again, all through Jewish history, you constantly see this sort of pattern where certain people say, no, we have to draw the line, adhere to the teachings and not compromise and avoid being corrupted, right, by these outside influences. What ends up happening, uh, if you don't uh, know, is the northern kingdom of Israel gets conquered and overrun by Assyria, the big sort of rising superpower. Most of those tribes get scattered. The kingdom is basically destroyed. But some of the leaders like scribes, priests, government officials, flee south. They become refugees. They flee south into Judah, and they bring this different point of view into the kingdom of Judah. So you get this sort of fusion. The way these northern Israelites see it, they don't say, oh, well, you know, we were eating pork, so that's why we got destroyed by Assyria. They say we were disobeying the moral laws, the laws about compassion, honesty, equality. We violated those sort of ethical teachings, and that's why God didn't protect us and we got destroyed by Assyria. So they go down to Judah, and then around King Josiah in, in Judah, in Jerusalem, they sort of merge these northern and southern ideas together and come up with this like renewed, ultra-strict idea of how to observe all the laws very rigorously. That's where you basically get the book of Deuteronomy, is this sort of summation of how this one remaining little kingdom holding out against the Assyrians ought to survive by redoubling their commitment to God. The kingdom of Israel was destroyed, if I remember right, I believe it was destroyed in 722 BC. So, it's in the 600s BC that you get this kind of reform movement in Jerusalem, when Judah is this last little holdout kingdom. So we have like around 100 years or so to go before we get the destruction of the first temple. Exactly. So the first temple then is destroyed by the Babylonians, the new <laughs> aggressive superpower, in 597 BC. It's a little more than one century of interim there. 597 BC, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is mostly destroyed, and you get another exile where now the leadership of Judah is taken out. You know, they're sort of the lucky ones. They get sent to Babylon. Other people manage to stay and hang on. Some others are scattered to various other places, right? So there's a sort of diaspora. But you get now about 50 years or so of the so-called Babylonian captivity. There's no Jewish kingdom. Jerusalem is like desolate. And you get this leadership group 
in exile in Babylon. And in Babylon, you get another sort of wave of reform, recommitment to monotheism. Uh, this is when a lot of the, the Torah and the, the scriptures start to be edited and organized together into a collection. You get the prophet Ezekiel and sort of great you know visionaries like this. In the Babylonian captivity, Judaism gets more kind of organized, codified, and gets new spiritual inspiration. You know, some of the Psalms are written at this time too. Eventually, the Persians take over, so you get another superpower, and the Persians are much more, we would say, tolerant, right, in quotation marks. They're much more supportive of people following their own customs, worshiping their own gods, and they encourage these exiled Jews to go back to Jerusalem. So they go back, and they bring back these new books and texts that they've written or edited, these new laws. They meet up with those remaining Israelites who were back there already, who had never been exiled, who were still in the country. So what happens is you now get this new split. You have this Jewish kind of leadership group who are very well read, who are philosophically minded, who have learned some from the Persians and Zoroastrianism. And they go back and meet these people whom they call the Amha Aretz, the folk, the country folk. And they're like, you guys are just bumpkins. You haven't even read the Torah. You don't know how to do this right. Some of you have intermixed and intermarried with these other peoples. And they have to do like a cleansing reform campaign like all over again. So this is a new sort of split that happens that comes up again many times is like the people who came back from the exile, they had a rigorous idea of Judaism, right? But at the same time, they were also cosmopolitan. They'd been to different places in the world. They'd been to the great cities. They were well read. And they looked down on these sort of Jewish bumpkins who were like, you're not doing Judaism, right? Like we need to bring you up to snuff. And that was leaving out the Samaritans who are whole other story of like this basically possibly Israelite tribe who were relatively unaffected in their like isolated hill territory in the north in you know the Israel area they were unaffected by the original Assyrian takeover yeah yeah they were just like impervious nobody bothered with them and the Samaritans are like, who are you guys? You're doing this all wrong. And they disagree about where the temple should be. They say, no, we have this other mountain further north where we believe that we believe is the real temple mount. You're doing that thing on Mount Zion. We have nothing to do with that. They like hate each other. This is where you get the narcissism of small differences, where it's like the Samaritans are almost the same, but a little bit different. They have a different temple mount. They have a Torah, but it like a few lines are different. It's not identical mm -hmm. to what we think of as the Torah. So they're just like at each other's throats. So you get this effect where like little groups can kind of spin off in their own directions. And then they have to fight over who's right and who's like the correct Jews. And it happens over and over. And the Samaritans just happen to be this one group where like nobody ever completely forced them to conform. And they're still there. There's still Samaritans in like the West Bank area who do like this slightly different thing that's basically Judaism with a few differences. But that's a little unusual. Usually at some point, some elite ruler or elite class comes in and says, no, 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 we've got it worked out. Everyone do this. This is correct Judaism. Okay. They also rebuild the temple. For a little while, apparently, things are going along pretty well. They're technically under Persian rule, but there's almost no taxes. They're not forced to fight in Persia's wars. They're allowed to practice Judaism as they want. And there's a period of some 
flourishing, it seems. But it all gets upset again. This time, the new power that comes in is Alexander the Great, the Greeks and Macedonians. They invade and conquer Persia. This big chunk of territory comes under the control of these new rulers who are Greek and Macedonian and speak Greek and want their empire to be Greek. And this is probably not the first sort of assimilation crisis, but it's the first one we really know a lot about in detail. Because now you have all these Jews who are educated, they learn Hebrew, they read and write, they learn other languages, they learn Greek and Persian, they're traveling around, some Jews are going and settling in Alexandria and places like this. Now you have this Hellenistic power ruling them. So this is the Hellenistic age following after Alexander the Great, where now Greek is the language of learning and high culture and trade and politics over this gigantic chunk of the world, all the way from Europe to India. And the Jews are right in the middle of it. So lots of these learned Jews, well-to-do Jews, learn Greek. A lot of them start to take on Greek customs. You know, they Hellenize. And the word in Greek is Hellenizo, to do Greek things, act like a Greek. And they eat Greek food and wear Greek clothes. They enroll in gymnasia, which are places for athletics and study, both. Gay. Yeah, pretty gay. <laughs> well, the Greeks, you know, <laughs> they were all doing each other all over the place. But yeah, it brought up all of these questions about nudity, sex, eating food like pork, right? Because pork is also a big part of the Greek diet. And if you do those things, are you leaving behind Judaism? Right. And so there starts to be this increasing tug of war between Hellenizers and Judaizers. It gets more and more tense. You know, when we talk about Hanukkah, right, this is where the holiday of Hanukkah eventually comes from, is from the civil war that breaks out within the Jewish community between the Hellenistic side and the Judaizing side, the rigorist side that wants to strictly observe Jewish law to the exclusion of Hellenism. When we tell the Hanukkah story, we often say, well, the emperor Antiochus, who was an avid Hellenizer, he went in and desecrated the temple and tried to change Jewish customs. He outlawed the Torah. He made people eat pork. But it wasn't really Antiochus doing that. Like, he was kind of busy with, like, running a big empire. It was Hellenistic Jews who were doing those Whoa. things. Yeah. yeah, it was the high priest of the temple who brought in pigs intentionally desecrated, and built another temple further up the mount to Zeus, right? And tried to rededicate the Jews to this kind of universalistic, abstract Greek understanding of Zeus instead of the biblical God. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was an internal conflict in Judaism. Wow. They keep that from us in religious school for sure. Yeah. You don't really get the story that way, which is common, right? You know, it wasn't really the occupiers making this all happen, it was the people within the community. And it happens that our term Judaism, the root is from Judah, the ways, the laws of the kingdom of Judah, the sort of more insular, more rigorous community, and how some people wanted to adhere to those. And so they Judaized, or in Greek, they Judaizod, they acted like Jews, did Jew things, as opposed to Hellenizo, Hellenizing. 
So during this time, the people who wanted to be more rigorous and Judaize, were they consciously using this mythology about the old kingdom of Judah and how we need to be more like that during the time? Is that kind of one of the symbols that they're rallying their support around? Because that happened hundreds of years in the past at this point. Yes, it was already pretty ancient history for them by this point. But I think what they were doing is they were looking to the Torah, which existed in some form. It wasn't as totally standardized as it would be later. But they had the books of Genesis and Exodus, and they looked to, you know, God delivering the Israelites, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. You know, they wanted to keep up and not betray that sense of a covenant and of being a people set apart. You know, there are these repeating lines over and over in the Torah. You are a nation of priests. You're the apple of my eye. You have a special relationship with God that makes you more holy. And then, you know, Isaiah, you'll be a light unto the nations, as opposed to the Hellenistic point of view, which was, we can all be a melting pot and Jews are just one people among many. I think this fundamental push and pull that you keep seeing over and over again is if we coexist with other people, do we see ourselves as just one nation among other nations? Or do we see ourselves as somehow specially set apart, specially sanctified, you could say? There's sort of no final answer to that question. Jews among themselves are always going back and forth, changing their minds, mixing and matching. It just happens that this was an incident, the Maccabee revolt was an incident where people were forced to take sides. Are you a Hellenizer or a Judaizer? And the Maccabees managed to succeed in retaking control of Jerusalem, you know, the whole Hanukkah story. And so they set up an independent kingdom again for another about 150 years or so. But you know who the next power was, right? I'm assuming the Romans. (laughs) The Romans, right? The thing about the Romans is like, they didn't do Judea like they did Britannia. They didn't send in masses of legions to conquer. Rather, infighting among the Jews led some of them to call in the Romans as like peacekeepers. It was like, guys, we're about to go into more civil war. Can you Romans come in and like keep some order here? Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like a product of this constant Jewish split. King Herod the Great, by some sort of convoluted way, he was related to the Maccabees. I don't totally understand the relationships between the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans, but he was a king from some sort of Jewish dynasty. He basically said, I'm the leader of the Jews, and I'm going to make the Jews splendid. I'm going to build great works. I'm going to build up the temple, you know, beautify it, build aqueducts and baths and amphitheaters and all these lovely Greco-Roman things. And I'm going to be a friend of Rome, right? He never really acknowledged, like, I'm subordinate to Rome or I'm a puppet ruler. I'm a friend of Rome. And he was pretty respected in the Roman Empire. By that time, there was beginning to be more and more of a Jewish diaspora. You had Jews saying, you know, Judea, it's pretty poor. It's kind of backwards. If you really want to make it, if you want to prosper and be learned and experience the world, you go to Alexandria or Rome or all the way maybe to Spain or Morocco. You go to the, through this Roman world and you have to kind of, you know, make some compromises, like do the Jew thing, but also sort of fit in and be a Roman. And Herod was their hero because Herod was like, 
kind of making it work. It's like, I'm, I'm sort of both. Herod would go around to these cities where there were Jewish communities in other places, and he would build an amphitheater there and fund a school and, you know, help these people to sort of be Jewish, but also be respected as part of the Roman Empire. This was working kind of well for them for a while until it didn't, <laughs> right? Until, again, the Romans kind of pushed too hard to turn Judea into more of a province where they could tax people and raise soldiers and armies and have tighter control. They tried to basically assimilate, right? In the same sort of way that the Hellenistic Persians did. They tried to assimilate them into the empire. And so again, you get this split and you get first Jewish war in the 60s AD, and then another one, the Bar Kokhba uprising in the 130s. And again, it's like, well, you've been skating by, kind of trying to have it both ways, but now you have to pick sides again. Both times, the Judaizing side lost, right? Both times, the Romans were just too powerful. So then you get, you know, destruction of the Second Temple. That happens first in the First Jewish War. And then the second time, they really destroy Jerusalem and disperse people. And so you get the real diaspora, like we think of it. Regionalism, I'm definitely noticing regionalism causing different kind of types of assimilation among mm -hmm. different people. I definitely see those two axes. Yeah, well, actually, this is really interesting and important, too, to understand is the sort of the sectarian divides where you have in the Hellenistic age and the Roman age, you have a lot of Jews who are assimilating in different ways, right, who are becoming more like other people in the Mediterranean world. And then some Jews say, no, we have to draw a line, we have to adhere to Jewish tradition, Jewish law, but they do it in very different ways. And you get these different camps, you know, it's it's kind of like Monty Python, like the Judean people's front and the people's front of Judea. But you get these different camps who go about resisting in very different ways. So you get the people who see the temple as very important. You have to keep up the temple cult, the temple rites, exactly as according to tradition and the scripture, and they're led by the priests. And the sort of faction around the temple is called Sadducees, because like the first temple priest, I think, was Zadok. They're sort of rivals with another party called the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are led by scribes, so people who copy the scriptures and sometimes study them, comment on them, try to teach them. Pharisees, so they're, they're more sort of scholarly, and they also, they build up more support among the populace, the sort of the Amha'arets, right, the ordinary people of the country. They go out to villages, teach people, set up little schools, and so on. And then you get another faction is Essenes, who are the people who go out into the desert. And this is something that also happens over and over again in Jewish history, is you get some Jews who are like, everything is corrupted, everything's been polluted by the Gentiles and immorality, right? And so they go out into the desert and live like very austerely, sort of like the forerunners really of Christian monks, right? They're kind of like monastic. And they set up little villages, little communes, like the Qumran community that produced the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, Scrolls right. right. So they're they're probably, we don't know much about them, but they probably were an Essene group living sort of vegetarian, pacifist. So these three groups that you mentioned, which I think we know about because of Josephus's history. Right, he delineates them, yeah. So these three groups, they all have a different relationship to assimilation and showing their Judaism. Yeah, yeah. 
those things have a complicated relationship to their political ties, also their like financial status, I'm assuming. Yes, they're differentiated by class, by politics, by religious belief. It's all of the above. However, the fourth group that Josephus doesn't really talk about so much because he just like likes them, he just sees them as valid, is the zealots. They're the militants, right? The people who say, in order to be Jewish and practice Jewish law, we have to get rid of the Romans. And they're guerrilla fighters, saboteurs. There were a bunch of little rebellions continuously through this Roman era, not just the two big wars. And a lot of them were instigated by the zealots. And the sort of most extreme radical zealots were the Iscarii. And some people think that Judas Iscario mentioned in the New Testament was was one of those was yeah. one of them yeah so you get this kind of crazy ferment of like different groups hiving off saying how are we going to do judaism under this bad political situation you know with this elite that's kind of romanized they all try different things but ultimately as we said the temples destroyed jerusalem's destroyed the people are dispersed so the question then is which form of being jewish or carrying on judaism works the best in the conditions of exile and diaspora? The answer is Pharisaism. Those are the predecessors to all the rabbis that we learn about when we, you know, read the Talmud and other midrash from that time period. Yeah, yeah. They're all coming from that sort of point of view of like the core of Judaism is in reading and discussing and studying the scriptures, interpreting them and applying them to life beyond just the temple right? Whereas the Sadducees centered everything on the temple. After that point, there's a lot we don't know. This is kind of the most mysterious period, you know, the Dark Age, right? The late antiquity, the early Middle Ages. But we know that most of these scattered exile communities sort of come together around these teachers and scholars of the law, people we now call rabbis. They form rabbinic Judaism. They collect the debates and the discussions into the Talmud, the Babylon Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. And it seems like for a long time here, the real big center of Jewish study and Jewish life and art was Babylon, right? It was Mesopotamia. They had the most money. They had these leaders who were called exilarchs, who were almost like deputy kings. They were sort of like second kings after the Babylonian kings. And then meanwhile, in the Roman world, you know, you've got all kinds of little Jewish communities in, in Egypt, in Italy, in Spain. So you get these scattered Jewish communities, and this is where regionalism really comes to the fore again. You could say, in a way, there's more of an ideological consistency, that now they're all sort of on the same page, right? That the Torah, the scripture is the core of Jewish law, and there's a, a written law and an oral law. It's practiced in the home. It's practiced in gatherings called synagogues, in the mikvah. There's consistency on that level, but you have Jews who are like thousands of miles apart in these wildly different countries that are now speaking different languages. The Gentiles have different religions. And so you start to get these sort of hiving off, right? Where you have Jews in Egypt who speak certain languages, have certain customs, Jews in Babylonia and Persia, Jews in Greece who speak Greek, and they become what we call Romaniote. Romaniote means Romans. The Byzantine Empire, the Christian Greek-speaking Roman Empire, they were still technically the Roman Empire, and they called themselves Romanoi, the Romans. <laughs> so the Jews there became Romaniote, 
Then you also have some going to Spain, and some go to Spain while it's still a Christian kingdom, and then even more go when it becomes an Islamic kingdom, because they're more tolerated and accepted under the Muslim government. So you get this Sephardic community, which originally just means Spanish. Then you also get a little group that goes up north into Europe. And a lot of them, we don't know like where they went, what became of them. But we know that some ended up settling in the Rhineland area, sort of on the edge of what's now France and Germany. They start speaking German, and then they form a Jewish form of German, which we call Yiddish, and they become known as the Ashkenazi Jews, which just means German. Those become sort of the big groups, the Middle Eastern and North African group, Romaniote in Greece, basically, Sephardic in Spain, and Ashkenazi in Germany or the Rhine area. I think most of our listeners probably have heard of those groups, maybe not the Romaniote. Yeah, we don't know about that so much in the West, but they're they're there. This is all like late Middle Ages. We're talking 1100, 1200, exactly. 1300. These are when these kind of regional groups that are more well-known and still exist now, at least as labels that we use to label each other, this is when they kind of came about. Exactly. And you can basically see them as distinct groups by about 1100. They're not necessarily all that different, but they're almost like little nationalities, kind of. Sephardic Jews, largely they speak Arabic and Spanish. And they form Spanish into their own form called Ladino, which is still spoken by some people. You know, they take up a lot of the customs of Islamic Spain. They have a certain degree of rights and freedoms. They're not equal to Muslims, but they're able to study and teach at universities. They become doctors, professors, philosophers. You know, not all of them, obviously, but some do. And they also are able to study the classics. They study Aristotle and Plato and this great, you know, fund of knowledge that is carried on in the Islamic world. Meanwhile, by comparison, the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, some of them are quite learned, but not on the same level. And they're much more restricted in what sort of jobs they can do, where they can go, who they can associate with. And so this kind of status difference develops where Sephardic Jews see themselves as more worldly, more cosmopolitan, as compared to the Ashkenazi, who they see as kind of bumpkins and more isolated, backwards. That status differential continues right down to today. Like if you ask most Jews, even today, they're like, oh yeah, Sephardic is higher status than Ashkenazi. Sephardic is sophisticated and worldly. Ashkenazi is like, oh, those in-laws you don't want to be seen with. Right. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the difference between Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms. I associate Ashkenazi Judaism with Orthodox dynasties, many of them which are Hasidic, that are, you know, strict in lifestyle along certain dimensions that aren't very cosmopolitan. And I think of Sephardic Judaism as kind of not being like that. So the Sephardic Judaism kind of mimics the cosmopolitan worldliness of Israel versus Judah, the rural, quote-unquote, backwards kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there's an echo there. There's definitely an echo there. But, you know, to be totally fair, also, there have always been many Sephardic Jews who are very strictly observant. And there have always been many Ashkenazi Jews who are totally, you know, lax and whatever, and, (laughs) you know, never show up in synagogue, etc, etc. So these are just generalizations. But there's a difference. And there's a real difference in perception. The sort of archetypal Sephardic Jew is extremely different from the archetypal Ashkenazi Jew. And part of that is just the fact that Sephardic people 
people were much more often in environments where they were able to blend in, you know, and that wasn't necessarily seen as such a problem, whether it was in Islamic Spain or later also in some places in Italy and France. They were able to blend in because they were politically allowed to blend in or because just Islamic society was more similar to Jewish society than, you know, the Christianity that was happening. It was both. It's it's hard to say very much in detail, and I've tried to find out more, but we just don't have a whole lot of information. You know, we have internal writings and records of the Jewish community, and we have some references, you know, legal dealings and such with Jews. But nobody was like writing an ethno history, you know, of like the Sephardic Jews of Provence in the 14th century. So we have limited knowledge, but it seems like in the Islamic world and also to some degree in Western Europe, it was like, you know, Jews really should be baptized and become Christian. But, you know, whatever, like eventually they'll get there. Like, let's not make a big fuss about it. Whereas when you go into Central and Eastern Europe, you have societies that are just overwhelmingly Christian. In Islamic Spain, there were multiple religions and they all had to somehow coexist, right? In Germany, it's like everybody is Catholic. You're the one holdout group and we really, really (laughs) want to make you convert or just go away. And so they were much more embattled and isolated. What eventually happened, this sort of was instituted bit by bit in the late Middle Ages, is that states and countries started making laws that Jews were allowed to live there, but only within very small delimited zones. And so the towns and cities formed ghettos, right? The first official ghetto was in Venice, and that's where the word comes from. It was an island that used to have a foundry, and the word ghetto is just a Venetian word for foundry. So it's like, stick all the Jews on that like unused, basically industrial lot over there, and put a wall around it, and say, all right, we won't kill you, and we won't force you to convert, and we'll let you like make a living, do some trade, do some money lending, as long as you stay there, don't leave at night, And as long as you like wear a funny hat or like a weird badge on your clothing to show you're a Jew. It's not like the Jews were like, hey, let's look and sound totally different from everyone else. It was like the Gentile society was saying, we have to mark you out and keep you contained so that you don't blend in. They developed this whole set of customs and traditions where you have your own like little law courts, your own family law, your own property law. You have your own, basically your own language. You have your own library, your own press. You've got like a little self-sufficient culture going on on unto itself within the ghetto. A lot of what we think of now as, in quotation marks, orthodox Judaism, although there was no such thing yet. There's no orthodox until there's reform. But what we think of as orthodox Judaism, a lot of that is basically the life ways and customs that Jews came up with in the ghetto in order to be able to cohere, get along, not fight with each other, and not like get crushed (laughs) while existing in this little enclave. So you have sort of the era of the ghetto, which goes from, you know, basically like the 1400s to the 1700s or so. Again, in terms of like doctrines and teachings, things are fairly consistent. And you've got rabbis like writing to each other and a lot of different Jewish communities will sort of recognize like the Venice rabbinate is like the most learned and so we defer to them. They're almost like the Supreme Court of the Jews in that whole area of Europe. The one exception is the Karaite Jews, who, as far as I can tell, are pretty mysterious. 
And they're kind of like the Samaritans, but not to the same degree. There's no question they're Jews, right? But the Karaites are like a, a sect of Jews who do not believe that there is an oral law on a par with the written law. So this is very central to the Pharisees and the rabbis who are kind of spiritual descendants of the Pharisees. They believe, well, there's the written law, but the written law has like gaps and some of it's confusing and there are contradictions. So alongside that, there's also an oral Torah, which was also given from God. That helps you work out like, all right, how do we actually do this when the written Torah is too confusing or inadequate. And that's part of what the Talmud is all about. And, you know, rabbinical study, it's about this oral law. Karaites say, no, there's no oral law that has authority like the written Torah. So the Talmud is nice. It's like an interesting book, but it's not authoritative. You don't have to follow it. And the rabbis are like, they're like a little too big for their britches. Like they don't really have that much importance and authority as they think. They form their own little hived off group. And we know that they were around at least as early as the 700s in some way. There were some in Egypt before the Muslims took over. And then there were also some in Constantinople in the Middle Ages. So there was a ghetto in Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire. Apparently it had 2,000 Jews. And then there was like a fence. <laughs> and there was a little section with 500 Karaite Jews. <laughs> I wonder if the, if the Karaite Jews were a breakoff from the rabbinic Jews after the destruction of the Second Temple, or if they trace their roots to like the Essenes or something crazy, really, you know, like yeah. before the destruction of the Second Temple. Well, I think that's exactly what scholars have been debating. That's what I saw. It was like, scholars still debate, was this something that developed in the Middle Ages, like a little heterodox school of thought? Or do they have their roots going back maybe to the Sadducees, to the, the Temple Party? And Karaites also do not believe in a resurrection and a, a sort of life after death, which most Jews through most of the Middle Ages did but some uh, did not. And the Karaites did not. So some people think, well, maybe is that the influence of these other parties like Sadducees or Essenes who were distinct from the Pharisees, but we don't know. It could very well be that the Karaites are kind of similar to like Protestant Christians. Yeah. Or they could predate rabbinic Judaism entirely. Yeah. Are they a vestige of something pre-exile or are they just another way of doing Judaism that came up in the exile? We don't know. Okay. So we have these regional groups of Jews. We mm -hmm. have the Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, and Karite Jews. We mentioned the, the Romaniote right. and so the Greek lands. And then also there are other groups and we don't know always exactly how they got there, but there are other Jewish groups in Ethiopia, in India, and eventually in China, in Kaifeng in China. But they're much smaller by comparison. The biggest groups are Sephardic and Ashkenazi. Part 2. Divisions Between Jews and the Modern Era In the 1700s, so if we go to the 1700s, that was kind of a crucial time where all of Europe, you know, was changing. The population was growing, and especially a lot of population was growing in the East. As the whole population grew, there was more demand for food, and the Eastern Europe is the breadbasket. So suddenly these kingdoms like Poland and Hungary and Russia are like, whoa, there's huge demand for grain, and we've got all this countryside that's barely populated. And they were like, hey, Jews... Not Russia, but certainly Poland, Hungary, Romania. They were like, 
Jews come in, help us create towns and villages, create businesses, act as merchants and middlemen to basically be part of this massive development of the countryside in Eastern Europe. So the Ashkenazi Jews go in and sort of fill that vacuum and become like the merchants, traders, petty administrators of Eastern Europe. There were already some in Eastern Europe even before that, but small, small numbers. Part of what started them moving east was a wave of pogroms and persecutions in the Rhineland. So especially with like the Crusades, spontaneous crusading armies would gather and head out to go to the Holy Land. And on the way, they would massacre some Jews. So all these towns, Jewish communities devastated. So they start going east, where comparatively, they're more tolerated. They're more protected. The rulers want them there. They don't like like them, but they want them there because they're economically useful. Also, with expulsions and persecutions in Spain, a lot of those Sephardic Jews also go up to Northern Europe. They go to Germany, the Netherlands. So those countries are like, whoa, we don't want all these Jews. The number of Jews here is multiplying. And so then they would expel some, or they would just close the border and say, actually, we don't want any more Jews. So they would be forced to go further east. So now you get this huge booming Jewish population in Eastern Europe. It's mostly Ashkenazi. So now by like 1800 or so, the majority of all the Jews in the world are Ashkenazi and they're in Central and Eastern Europe. They're in Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, Galicia, which is this like country that doesn't exist anymore. That's like some Poland, some Ukraine, Romania. That's now like the big center of gravity of the Jewish world. And they massively outnumber now the Sephardic, who are more in the West. This is a group of people who, in their most recent few centuries of history, living in like the Rhineland, have created a whole separate society from the Gentile society around them. Right. And their everyday language is Yiddish. They have a literature in Yiddish. They have folklore in Yiddish. Eventually, they have Yiddish theater, too. You now have small Sephardic group in the West, totally looking down on these Ashkenazi in the East. There's also some Ashkenazi who remain in Germany. And it's difficult because they're very persecuted, but some manage to hang on. And they're able to stay largely because there are some small states, principalities around Germany, right? It's very divided. And some of them say, well, you know, we could use some Jews here. We need some money lenders. We need some merchants, some craftsmen. Some of them even say, you know, a lot of these Jews, they're very literate and worldly. We could use them as ambassadors and treasurers and so on. So you get small pockets of Jews who stay in Germany. And those guys also become very learned, very worldly. A lot of them are in government or the universities. They start to feel like, you know, we're like pretty cool. We're way better than those guys over in Poland and Lithuania who are so provincial and they only speak Yiddish and they're so insular and they're so tied to like all these arcane laws and obsessed with diet laws and Sabbath laws and they just stick out like sore thumbs. So you get these... Jews in Germany who are like, you know, we want to like be Jewish, but we want to do it in a way that's not so glaring, that doesn't make us look so weird and insular and antiquated. So this begins in the 1700s. And I'm assuming that this is the kind of the seed that's planted for reform Judaism. Right. It eventually leads to that. So to try to put kind of an overall story on it, what you get is a Jewish world that's mostly Ashkenazi, that's quite persecuted that 
in large part is very devoted to traditional law, right? Observance of the Sabbath and the holidays and sees Judaism as a kind of total way of life, right? A complete enactment of the law and the Torah in all through everyday life. Everything is suffused with Judaism. But some people feel really stifled. They don't get to know about the wider world. They don't get to explore. It's not very individualistic. So there's a kind of frustration and a spirit of rebellion against the weight of this traditional ghetto Judaism. There are basically four ways that people react against this and rebel and try to be Jewish in a different way. There's sort of four different, you could say, paths of liberation. One of them is Hasidism, which starts in Poland, right? So it starts in this, this place that has lots and lots of Jews. The rabbis are very powerful. They are allowed to live there. They have a role in Polish society, but it's very circumscribed. So you get this movement, and we'll talk about this more you know, later, right? But Hasidism begins as this sort of lay spiritual and pietistic movement led initially by sort of traveling preachers and miracle workers, right? And the main founding figure is Israel ben Eliezer, who's also called the Baal Shem Tov. So he's a Baal Shem, a lord of the name. He's sort of a person with mystical and magical powers. And he's the Baal Shem Tov because he's especially good, pious. And he sort of inspires this religious awakening, which happens in like lay gatherings. It's very similar to kind of Christian pietistic yeah. movements. I'm thinking of like the Great Awakenings, the two of them in America. Right, the Great Awakenings or Quakerism. It's very similar to that kind of thing. So this is like a bottom-up fervor that happens among Ashkenazi Jews in Eastern Europe. It was a reaction to the conditions of their life. Right, right. And for some people, not for everyone, but for some people, it's kind of a reaction against the enormous power of the rabbis, right? It's a way to have a spirituality outside of the watchful eye of, of the rabbinate. And it is kind of rebellious in a way, but also many people in the elites patronize it and support it too. It splits the Jewish community in Poland. Just like with the dispute over Hellenization, people are forced to take sides. And so some people support the Hasidic movement, and some people say, no, it's unintellectual, it's superstitious, it's like irrational, and it doesn't respect the importance of study and the law. And so those people, like, for instance, the Vilna Gaon, and we'll talk about this more yeah. later, right? But people sort of have to organize to oppose it and criticize it, and then others organize to defend it. So you get this dividing line, and you could say, well, in a sense, the people who were against the Hasidic movement, they are like what we now call Orthodox, except the twist is now we also consider Hasidic people Orthodox. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all a word game, right? But you get the Hasidic movement, then you get Haskalah, also called the Jewish Enlightenment, although in Hebrew, Haskalah means sort of intellect or intellectual understanding. So this was the movement among sort of well-educated German-speaking Jews in Germany who say, you know, it, this is so stifling and we're losing people. Some people every year go and get baptized and are like, oh my God, I can leave the ghetto. I can go live my life. I can practice my trade. I can go study and learn and travel. So the Haskalah is led by these sort of new German Jewish intellectuals, beginning with Moses Mendelssohn is kind of the first prophet of Haskalah in the 1700s. And he goes to the salons in the university cities and he makes friends with Immanuel Kant and all these fun people. And he basically argues, look, you can be Jewish and also fully participate in the wider world. 
there doesn't have to be this barrier dividing the Jews and the Gentiles, and we should be able to do Judaism in a way that allows us to also, whatever it is, study Judaism, be a politician, be an army general, and be fully German, right? Not be this sort of distinct nation within the nation, but be fully German or fully Polish or fully Italian or whatever it is you are. The supporters of Haskalah would say, or the, the masculim, the maskil means like smart, enlightened guy. The masculim would say, well, this is a good compromise. This is a way to continue being Jewish without limiting your participation in the entire world. And they organize an intellectual movement, which they call Wissenschaft des Judentums, the science of Judaism. Oh. So they sort of go through and do like proper German-style historical study of the history of the Jews based on verifiable, you know, documentation rather than just, you know, Torah, rather than just saying the Torah is the history and then you suffer and it's suffering and persecution. <laughs> I mean, that, that, was, that was the traditional view of the ghetto world was... We had this great history when we were favored by God, then we were crushed and exiled, and now history is like over and suspended until the Messiah, until the Messiah comes and then everything starts again, and we're just in this kind of suspended in-between state. Well, Wissenschaft des Judentums says, no, we still have an unfolding history. We have an intellectual life, an artistic life. We're developing and growing just like any other nation, just like any other people. That sort of gains followers in mainly in Germany. So we have Hasidic Judaism. Mm-hmm. We have... Haskalah. What are the other two? Briefly, the other two are secular radicalism. So just leaving Jewish life completely and embracing the new world of socialism and anarchism and radical unions. This is where you get, well, first sort of Heinrich Heine is sort of the first prophet of this, who becomes a radical poet. He celebrates the French Revolution and he's a German Jew by birth. But he sort of says, yeah, you know, I happen to be a Jew, but I embrace mankind and the new message of equality in the French Revolution. So this is very similar to the teacher that is in Fiddler on the Roof that comes and seduces one of the daughters. Right, right. And, you know, and in Heine's time in the early 1800s, this was just beginning. This was like, oh, wow, there's a radical world out there. And if I leave the ghetto, I can go join that. And then it grows and grows until by the late 1800s, you have a sort of wing, almost like the Karaites had their little section of the ghetto. It's like there was like a radical, secular, atheist wing of every Jewish community all around Europe. So that would have been like a stock character everyone would know. So Hasidism is one, Haskalah is another, secular radicalism, communism is another. The fourth is Zionism, right? And Zionism is sort of the last to emerge. And Zionism is like a wild card because with Zionism, it's like we are a nation just like every other nation. So we should have a nation state just like every other nation. In a way, it's the ultimate secular Judaism. It's a way of saying, well, I'm, I am fully Jewish and committed to the Jewish people, but I totally reject the traditional ghetto idea that we have to live in this enclave under the rule of the Gentiles and wait for the Messiah. It's basically saying, no, we're going to be our own Messiah, and we're going to take our rightful place among the nations of the world. So different people react to Zionism very differently. It gets very messy and complicated. To go back for a second, just back to Haskalah. So Haskalah, you know, puts forward this idea that you can look at Judaism in a way through secular eyes and sort of judge what is good, what is bad, what is true, what is false 
from a kind of impartial secular standpoint. And that doesn't mean that you completely give up Judaism. So they start to inspire, in the early 1800s, they start to inspire Jewish reform. So this is where the reform movement starts. It starts in Germany in the 1810s. And you get these synagogues in German towns. I think the first one was Sazen, which is like a little town I've never heard of. And then Berlin. They reform their worship. They do some things that sound totally familiar and normal to us, like doing some of the service in your vernacular language in German, having sermons in German, and having men and women sit together rather than in separate sections. Then some of them start to go more radical. Some of them move worship to Sunday instead of Saturday. Some of them abolish bar mitzvahs because that's not in the Torah. Some of them have the rabbis wear like robes that look like Lutheran ministers. That's creepy. Yeah. And it got to this point, there was some journalist who said at some point, like a Lutheran minister could walk in to one of these temples, one of these so-called reformed temples in Germany and not realize that he was in a temple rather than a church until the sermon when they mention, you know, Moses or something. And he realizes, wait, is this a Jewish temple? Like they become almost indistinguishable. So it's this movement that They're trying, in a sense, to rationalize Judaism. They're trying to modernize it. But, you know, all their standards of, like, what is normal, what is dignified, what is rational is basically what German Lutherans think and look like and act like, right? It's assimilationist, even if it's not fully conscious that that's, like, what they're doing. Some of them were conscious. They were, like, exchanging letters with ministers and, like, sharing notes on sermons. And, like, it was clear that they were almost merging into Uh one kind of German-style religion. So this then spreads to other places, right? It gets taken up in America. A lot of German Jews migrate to America. And in the 1840s, 1850s, you get a growing German-Jewish population in the U.S., and they start a reform movement here, too. And it's basically German-style, and it's basically we're going to fit in with other Americans. We have a different religion, We are of the Israelite religion, but we are not a separate nation. We're not a separate people. We're just Americans or Canadians or French or whatever. And that's the kind of Judaism that at least I was exposed to growing up. I can see how someone like me would associate something like Hasidic Judaism with being more orthodox, Mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. though Hasidic Judaism is itself one of the reactions to what you could call orthodox Judaism. Yeah. Well, and the trick here that you have to get that makes all of this make more sense, I think, is that there is no orthodox until there's reform. If you don't have reform, then how can anyone be orthodox? You have to be orthodox as opposed to reform. So certain rabbis kind of have to group together and put together an opposing point of view, that reform is not viable. All it is is just a halfway step towards conversion, That's how they see it. They are also skeptical. They don't necessarily reject them completely, but they're very skeptical about Hasidism, about this mystical pietist movement, about Zionism. Some of them completely reject Zionism. So you end up with this sort of wing of Judaism that is also rigorous and is trying to respond to all of these new challenges and all these new notions of how to be Jewish. And that's where orthodoxy eventually comes from. Orthodoxy, you know, it sounds weird, but formal organized orthodoxy also mainly came about in America because you had this world where by, say, 1870, you have a Jewish community in America that is mainly German, 
also some others, some Sephardic, but mainly German, very reform, very assimilated. And then the emigrations from Russia start. You get super onerous taxes, huge conscription demands on the Jews in Russia. And then you get waves of pogroms starting after 1881. There's a huge wave of pogroms. So you get this enormous migration of mainly Russian Jews into America. And they show up and they're like, what are these temples? This is not, <laughs> this is not Judaism. This is not what we know. This is not the songs, the prayers, the Hebrew. And they're like, this does not work for us. Their leaders, their elders and their rabbis are like, oh, no, 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 no. We have to build something up here that is not this weird German reform thing. That is what we consider real Judaism. So orthodoxy has to be created in response to reform, as an alternative to reform. And they have to articulate what are our views, what are our commitments that distinguish us from the reform. So that's where you get orthodoxy. By about, you know, 1890-95, you've got the reform side, they've got Hebrew Union College, Union of Hebrew Congregations. You know, they're largely centered in the Midwest. Their leaders are these sort of very assimilated, very intellectual, scholarly Germans, Isaac Meyer Wise, people like this. They're rejecting the kosher laws. Isaac Meyer Wise has a banquet to celebrate the opening of Hebrew Union College. Uh-oh. And he holds a traif banquet where they serve oysters and meat with cream sauce. Oh, my God. Just to say, like, we are not like those old Jews. We are American Jews. Very in your face. So you have that. And they put together the Pittsburgh platform as sort of their statement of principles. And then you get the Orthodox, like, on their heels saying, like, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're going to do, like, correct Judaism. And they don't necessarily say we're Orthodox because that's not really a properly Jewish term. You know, it means correct belief. And that's not really the issue. They're orthoprax Jews. Do they call themselves that? No. Well, they generally say from, pious. We're pious Jews. We're pious Jews. So that's, and that's the word they still use for themselves, from, which means, it means pious in German and Yiddish. But you get all the others as well. You also get many Jews in America who just leave the fold completely, who join radical groups like the Bund or, you know, the IWW, just sort of oppositional radical groups who still consider themselves Jews, but have no interest in Judaism. And then you also have people who are like, well, you know, I kind of like reform, but maybe it's gone a bit too far. Maybe like we need some more of that sense of tradition and more of the emotionalism, the music of orthodox, orthodoxy. So they sort of break away from reform. They say, okay, American reform is like too far. Let's pull it back a bit. And they have a rabbi named Frankel, who's sort of their main leader, and they form the conservative Jewish movement. And they form their own college, right? Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. And it makes sense. Hebrew Union College is reform. They're in Cincinnati, this old, largely German Midwestern center. The conservatives create JTS in New York, where you have these newer immigrants coming from Eastern Europe who want something more like that traditional Judaism that they know from Eastern Europe. So you end up with these three streams that are all organized institutionally and all have their leaders, their conferences, their colleges where they train their own clergy, and they all basically form in America. Because America is the like kind of the free-for-all place where it's like, you want to do Judaism? Do it. Figure it out. There's no rabbinate. There's no ghetto. 
just do it. <laughs> so the main things I'm hearing you say is reform, conservative, orthodox. These labels, they really are modern labels that are describing a phenomenon that's a reaction to different ways of dealing with a type of Judaism that people are either leaving behind or wanting to hold fast to. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can see it as sort of America is this place where all sorts of immigrant groups are thrown together. And what that means is different sorts of Jews who are coming from different places, who have very different senses of how to do Judaism, are suddenly being thrown into the mix together. And now, you know, they do organize themselves regionally to some degree. They form Landsmannschaften, sort of clubs for people who came from certain cities in Poland. But mainly they align themselves kind of ideologically along the lines of like, what do you think Judaism should look like? How assimilated do you want it to be? How rationalized do you want it to be? And what do you want to assimilate to? <laughs> you know, like not everyone in America is like, oh, we've got to be like German Lutherans, you know, but some of them are like, well, we should look like Episcopalians. Really reform and conservative are the offshoots of the Haskalah reaction. Yeah, that's where the roots are. The next episode is going to be covering Hasidic philosophy, this particular type of reaction to Judaism in the 1700s. I imagine that a lot of maybe listeners to our podcast group Hasidic Judaism, which is really a reaction, with this group that's the group that they're reacting against. When did we start conflating those two groups? Yeah, yeah. And I do think most Hasidic people would consider themselves from. I do think that's normal. But I think it's because of this realignment that happened, where instead of sort of mystical lay piety being the big challenge to traditional authority. Instead, Haskalah and reform became the big challenge. It did in Germany, then it spread to other places in Europe, it spread to America. And so it's, you know, it's this effect of like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. If you look at different Orthodox Jews today, some of them are more in the Vilna Gaon kind of Talmudic halachic camp, right? Some of them reject Kabbalah, some of them reject the sort of mystical pantheism that you see in Hasidism, but they still agree with Hasidic people about certain things. They still agree that it's not optional to be kosher. It's not optional to observe the Sabbath. They still put enormous weight on learning the Torah, but they understand the Torah differently, right? Hasidic people have more of a mystical understanding of the Torah, that the, the letters, the words of the Torah have hidden meanings. They are divine in and of themselves, but they still sort of root, you know, the anchor of Judaism is the Torah, is learning and living by the Torah, both the written law and the oral law. And so that distinguishes them from reform. Reform would certainly agree that Torah is like the bedrock of Judaism, but they also would say, oh, but there's this sort of universal ethical message about the golden rule, and this is something that Jews share with other peoples and other religions. You know, there's this sort of erenic cosmopolitanism. To the landscape of differences between the Zionists and the Haskalah and the radicals and the ghettoized Jews in Europe is just so wide that the kind of radicalness of Hasidic Judaism kind of gets lost in that mix, at least from my modern assimilated perspective. Yeah, and it would be interesting to know, I don't know much about what non-Hasidic Orthodox Jews say about the Hasidic movement. That's something I would have to learn more about, right? But they certainly do recognize a commonality. They see them as 
more pious, more observant Jews as compared to reformed Jews who are like Jews who are like barely doing Judaism at all, right? right who like, right. it doesn't even really count. So that's sort of how things have resolved themselves. And in the 1900s, I think it's interesting, maybe this clarifies a little bit, but it seems that in the 1900s in Europe, Jews kind of realigned themselves into three basic camps. You had Orthodox reform who were very assimilationist. I read an article about the Jewish press in Hungary, which helped to clarify this, that you could basically see like there are the Jewish newspapers that are Orthodox. There are those that are assimilationist and who approve of a reform type of worship and who see themselves as Hungarian, Hungarians who are of the Jewish religion. And then the third group is Zionist. And all three of these groups like distrusted each other and disapproved. Yeah. <laughs> it's, in America, it's a little different in that if you look at it in America, at the synagogues, the book presses, the newspapers, there were four groups. There were the Reform, the Zionist, the Orthodox who were anti-Zionist, like the Orthodox in Europe, and the Orthodox who were pro-Zionist. And that seems to be something that only happened in America, that some Orthodox said, well, we don't accept reform, we don't accept Haskalah, but we do support Zionism. And that's still a split. If you go around to Orthodox Jews in America today, a lot of them are like totally pro-Israel, completely on board all the way. And some are not. Some are anti-Zionist and don't support the state of Israel. That's kind of how things have resolved themselves over time now. But that's another thing, like if you talk to non-Orthodox Jews, not many non-Orthodox Jews know that there are anti-Zionist Orthodox. Right, right. It's just like a fact that completely disappears in the mix to us. Right. But those splits are still there. So Orthodoxy is not a monolithic thing at all. There are real differences and variations but they are orthodox because they're different from reform. The defining characteristic of orthodox is we are not reform, basically. We are not Haskalah. Yeah, we do not have this progressive view of history. We do not believe that we're going to sort of merge with all mankind in some sort of secular utopia. And they still believe that God is at work in history, and history will progress, and the conditions of the Jews will change when there's a Messiah. Wow. Sam, thank you. I think some of the big takeaways from this episode are Jews have been categorizing each other by their differences since time immemorial. The current labels that we have, they are modern labels, and they are really the descendants of these kind of four reactions to Judaism that was happening in the 1700s. And that each one of these groups, and even this fifth group that everyone splintered from, they have different relationships with each other and differences inside of each other. Hasidic Judaism is just one of those streams that now we call it orthodox. By default. <laughs> By default. <laughs> Thank you, Sam, for coming on the show. Next week, we will get into the weeds about this particular reactionary stream of Judaism called Hasidic Judaism that occurred in the 1700s. What were they about? What were they about, people? That's what I want to know. Thanks, Sam. Everyone have a good week. Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov.